Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And I apologize for the voice. I've been fighting a vicious cold this week, Uh, but I win those kind of fights, praise God. And uh, there's a little bit of a remnant of the battle scars here in my throat this morning, right? So, uh, not ready to get back in with the through the Bible thing yet. Going to do some year-end, year-beginning stuff today and probably get right back into our going through the New Testament next week. But, uh, hey, has it been a good year? Has it been a bad year? Okay, well, listen, if, uh, if it's been a good year for you, you know, it's nice. You can tie it up and... Uh, File it away nicely in the memory box, and if it was a bad year, guess what? Good news. It's about over, and we got a brand new shiny one for you starting in a couple days. And this message today is really uh, kind of an expansion on the article that I wrote for the Beacon this month. Um, I announced a couple of weeks ago that I didn't plan on doing a year beginning fast this year like we've done for the last four years or so. Uh, and, you know, tied together with that, did not have a theme. You know, we we're wrapping up a year of giving here at the end of this year. And uh, I have been surprised, pleasantly surprised, by the number of people who have approached me and a number of people who've come up saying other people have talked about it without, even, without approaching me, uh, that they're disappointed in that, that they really want to do a year beginning fast. And I do too. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, hey, you know, just because we're not doing a church-wide fast doesn't mean we can't do one. Uh, but I've, uh, I've prayed about it. I've thought about it, talked about it. And um, we're going to have a fast. We, uh, I guess in my mind, you know, I sort of jumped the gun there if I didn't have a theme and I didn't want to make one up. I didn't want to stretch it. I, and again, I don't want to get legalistic about it. But I kind of felt, well, if we don't have a theme, we don't need to have a fast. But that's silly. Uh, we can certainly fast. We can certainly kick the year off with three weeks of, uh, of what we're going to be talking about here today. So uh, theme or no theme, it'll give us the opportunity to focus on some things that I think are pretty important for us as individual believers, very important for us as families, and very important for us as a church as we move into the new year. Uh, as I said, you know, there's nothing biblically that says we have to do this. I like the way Richard Foster puts it. We are free to fast. We're not commanded to, but we are free to. But why now? Why do we have to do it now? You know, there's, uh, we moved from 2018 into 2019, but that doesn't really change anything. You know, what I just said about wrapping up the old year and opening up the new one, your circumstances, your, circumstances, your struggles, your celebrations, your achievements, none of those things go away or, or change just because we happen to cross a certain point in the Earth's orbit and begin a new year, Right? Uh, but it is nice. Just turning that page on the calendar does give us uh, a fresh perspective. And uh, I spoke last week uh, for my Christmas message about the feasts of Israel and how they were commanded to observe them. They were commanded to set this, uh, this time aside and observe it in specific ways. They couldn't just say, hey, it's Passover week, so uh, stop working and do whatever you want to celebrate Passover your own way. There were specific things they were commanded to do to observe it and the other feasts. But this is different because uh, while the feasts of Israel always pointed them to a particular truth about God, there was always a doctrinal issue or a historical event or person 
tied into that feast. We don't really have that with New Year's. Uh, like I said, what, what, what's, it's, uh, it's not based on, a, on an event. It's not based on a doctrine. It's not based on a person. We just completed one more trip around the sun, 584 million miles. And you say you didn't travel much this year. And if you don't believe we traveled 584 million miles around the sun, we can have a private conversation about that, but I'm not going to get into that from the pulpit. It's still useful. Also because, uh, you know, after Tuesday, the, what we call the holiday season is pretty much over. People, even from outside of a faith perspective, often use this time to set goals, to make resolutions, to resolve, to do better, to get better, to make uh, certain changes. Uh, and part of the reason for the, that makes the timing so good is there are suddenly fewer distractions uh, fewer things that are flat out interfering with those resolutions. And what's, what's, what's probably, I can't say it for sure, I don't do the research, but what's probably the number one New Year's resolution people make? Yeah, lose weight. I'm going to get healthier. I'm going to eat better. I'm going to exercise more. And man, I'll tell you what, I know it's hard for everybody. I think it might be a little harder for uh, pastors because people are always bringing you stuff, bringing it to the house, bringing it to the office. There's always all this extra food. I happen to like to eat anyway. And... Uh, there's extra good stuff around this time of year, and it's everywhere. It's just everywhere. There's parties, gatherings, uh, all these little special opportunities. And uh, so knowing myself as I do, I don't try to start. I don't even try to start until certain things are behind me. And so it's a, it's a good thing, even if we're, not, even if we're, we're uh, one of those blessed few who don't need to make major changes to our diet, it's a good time uh, for reflection, for consideration, and for decision-making. And that's what, kind of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, you know, the people in the Bible, when it talks about fast, it often does talk about fasting for a specific need or situation. You remember when Jonah preached in Nineveh, the entire city fasted, uh, including the animals, not by choice probably. But they fasted in that case in repentance. Esther, uh, when the decree went out, uh, thanks to the machinations of, of Naaman, uh, who tried to exterminate the Jews. All the Jews fasted with Esther for deliverance of their very lives. They were, they were applying to God for rescue. And it was a serious situation, and they fasted for their survival right there in captivity. Jehoshaphat, uh, who's probably most famous for going out against a numerically superior foe and putting the praise team out front, instead of the warriors, and they never had to lift a finger. God fought the battle. He set up an ambush and chased away and killed their enemies. But what led up to that was a fast. Jehoshaphat declared that they would all fast and pray. Jesus fasted for 40 days uh, in the wilderness during the temptation episode. Jesus also said once, after casting out a demon that his disciples had, had, had not been successful casting out, he said, this kind comes out only by prayer and fasting. And I understand there are certain translations that leave out and fasting. But I, I take it, uh, when Jesus said that, uh, this kind comes out only by prayer and fasting, I don't really see that as being Jesus had to uh, fast specifically as preparation for this exorcism. I think what he's talking about is he fasted periodically, and it was this measure of devotion where he completely gave himself to prayer that caused him to be prepared for uh, demonic power that had such a strong grip 
that even the disciples couldn't cast him out. But again, we're free to fast even if we're not commanded to fast and even if there's not a specific and urgent situation. And I say, as I always do uh, this time of year when we get ready to fast, that the purpose of a fast is never to get God's attention on us. A purpose of a fast, especially something like this year-beginning fast, is to get our attention on God, right? One of my most, uh, one of my most favorite passages of, uh, in the Word of God is Second Chronicles 16, 9, where it says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, that he may show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is completely his. What does that mean? Well, it means, among other things, that we don't have to wave our hands, we don't have to shout, we don't have to fast to get God's attention. He is actively looking throughout the earth for people whose hearts are pure toward him. So that's a good place to start when we talk about self-reflection, when we talk about maybe changing. Uh, It's a good thing to consider, where is your heart? God's eyes are scouring the earth for the purpose of showing himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is completely his, is it? You know, again, we're wrapping up what we have designated a year of giving. And one of the principles we looked at early in the year is expressed in Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I believe that 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 statement is twofold. I think it's easy to see. Uh, You know, you want to see what's important to somebody. You want to see what their priorities are. Look at their checkbook. Uh, what, are you, what are you spending your, your, your money on? What are you spending your time on? What are you spending your energy on? What are you spending your talents on? But you look at the money too. Uh, you can see where somebody's heart is. But what Jesus said is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. There your heart will be. So if you're withholding your treasure, you are withholding your heart. You're withholding yourself. But not only that, you are failing to provide a means of turning your heart to where it ought to be. Because it'd be easy to say, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, look, you know, uh, I wish I had a more, a more of a heart to give. I wish my heart, I wish my treasure really were more in the kingdom of God, even more than it is. You know, and again, I'm not talking about people. I'm not talking compared to evil and sin. I'm talking about the things that the Bible would refer to not as sin, but as weights, things that distract us and pull us away from the work of the kingdom. Where's your treasure? And where do you want it to be? Well, I want it to be in the kingdom. I want my treasure to be with Jesus. Well, uh, I want my heart to be with Jesus. I want my heart to be with Jesus. Then put your treasure there, okay? If you don't do that, if you recognize if my heart's not where it should be and you refuse to put your treasure where your heart should be, you are, again, um, depriving yourself of a means to getting your heart where, where God wants it. In uh, Psalm chapter 35, and you can turn to this one. You could have turned to any of the ones I just quoted, but uh, we're going to read this one together. In Psalm 35, beginning in verse 11, it says, uh, Fierce witnesses rise up. They ask me things that I do not know. They reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting, and my prayer would return to my own heart. I paced about as though he were my friend or brother, 
I bowed down heavily as one who mourns for his mother. And he's talking about how he, when he prayed for his enemies, he prayed seriously. He allowed it to truly burden him, even though the people he was praying for did not. They were fierce. They rose up against him. But that line in there where he said, I humbled myself. uh, Another version says, I humbled my soul with fasting. You've got to be in a pretty humble posture to pray that uh, intensely and that seriously for somebody who is your enemy, somebody who rises up fiercely against you. It is a humble thing, a submissive thing. When we were talking about James, uh, and we'll, we'll encounter this again here in the near future, but uh, when we are talking about the difference between pride and humility, it's not simply a matter of haughtiness versus meekness. Uh, the, the true biblical definition of pride is simply a lie, complete lack of submission. And the true biblical definition of humility is complete submission to God's will. To be humble before God is to be submissive before God. And so when we talk about I humbled myself or I humbled my soul, you know, the soul is the seat of our will. And to humble my will, to bring my will into submission to God and his purposes how do I do that? Well, one of the ways I do that is to fast. I can bring my will into submission with fasting. You know, the appetite for food, our appetites are all strong drives, uh, but the appetite for food is a very strong drive. And if we can consciously set aside time to master that, our physical appetite for food, we will find that our will as a whole will move closer to being in line with that which God purposes in us, desires for us. But again, in the past, we've always had a theme, maybe something specific to pray about for these three weeks as we sort of set the tone for the year. And I'm not giving one of those out. And I need you to understand that, that that's fine. In fact, it's good. I preached a sermon a couple times. Uh, I don't remember the last time I preached it. I preached it at least once here, and I preached it at a men's conference. Um, And I don't even remember the title, but it was basically 10 things to do while you're waiting. If God has not called you, laid a particular burden on your heart for ministry, for prayer, for service, what are you supposed to be doing? I read a statistic recently. I'm pretty sure I've got this right. The average infantry soldier in World War II who who, uh, served for four years during World War II During those four years, the average soldier saw about 40 days of combat total. Four years of active service during the war equaled 40 days of actual combat. And we've talked about that before. I think it's a great illustration of life. I know it's different. That was World War II. Vietnam was a lot different because of the mobility Air mobility particularly, there was a lot more action for one year. People, the, the combat soldiers typically saw way more than 40 days of combat uh, in just one year. So, but the fact is that uh, if you look at the purpose of a military, it's to fight wars and win wars. But most of the time, you're not doing that. You're training, you're preparing you're, you're supplying. There's a lot of the things you have to do day to day just to maintain that battle-ready posture. And I think that really is the Christian life. 
We're all going to fight battles. We're going to have these great moments. We're going to have these very focused moments of spiritual warfare, of great victory, of great opportunity. Uh, but those are punctuated moments. And it doesn't mean that everything in between those is boring. Uh, but routine might be a, a better word as long as we don't attach a negative connotation to that. Our day-to-day life as believers should be characterized by certain things. And this was my sermon, 10 things, I guess, that ought to characterize us habitually. And I'm not going to preach this. I'm just, I'll just read you the list so you know what, what the kind of thing I'm talking about. Uh, but this, there were scriptures for every single one of these, and this isn't exhaustive, and it's not hierarchical. I'm going to read these things, and they're in no particular order. You know, I'm not saying the most important thing is this and this and this. I didn't bother trying to rank them. But here are 10 things that I think are Christian essentials. Walk in forgiveness. Praise and worship the Lord. Tithe and give. Share your faith. Read your Bible. Watch your mouth. Be sexually pure. Pray. Go to church. And be nice. All right? Now, I'm convinced that everybody in here could do with some improvement in at least a few of the things on that list. And what I'm suggesting is that rather than focus for three weeks on one particular issue or doctrine or need, we need to spend this time getting focused in general, tightening up, jerking the slack out, whatever you want to call it. In, uh, in my article, uh, I made the suggestion that we commit, or that we resolve, let's make it a resolution, right, to uh, read the book of Psalms in January. There are 31 days in January. 30 days in September, April, June. Yes, 31 days in January. There are 150 psalms. Uh, now, not all psalms are the same length. There's some very, very short ones toward the end of the book. There's one very long one, Psalm 119. But it, it breaks down to about five psalms a day. And since there's an extra day there, I would suggest using one whole day of reading for Psalm 119. Okay, you can, that can be its own day. And you do whatever you want. There are different reading plans. You know, the book of Psalms is broken up into different books. Uh, but it's, it's something that would be very easy to do, even in addition to whatever uh, reading or devotional you're doing already. And why? Why Psalms? Because, frankly, there is no better book in the Bible for reflecting on the nature of God himself. There's no better book in the Bible when it comes to self-examination There are templates in Psalms for praise and worship. There are models of repentance. And there are examples of resolution, resolutions, resolve. Here, in fact, is our text for the general fast. In Psalm 119, beginning in verse 57. You are my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep your words. I entreated your favor with my whole heart. Be merciful to me according to your word. I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. Let's look at this in a little bit of detail. The first thing he says is, you are my portion. More than once, I have shared a poem written by Francis Thompson. I believe the title of it is In No Strange Land. I love it. It's my favorite poem. But Francis Thompson is actually more well-known 
for another poem called The Hound of Heaven. Anybody ever have to read that in high school or college? A uh, fascinating poem where he talks about, where he describes, and this is very autobiographical, uh, being relentlessly pursued by a God he didn't really want anything to do with. How it was never a case of he, Francis Thompson, or really anybody desperately seeking God, but God pursuing him, God pursuing us, and how he ran away. I fled him down, fled him through the gates of the years, and so on. And there's a line in there pretty early on, and it's a pretty startling or a pretty searing line. I'm going to share it with you that says, For though I knew his love who followed, yet was I sore adread, lest having him I must have naught beside. For though I knew his love who followed, yet I was sore adread, lest having him I must have naught beside. You see, it wasn't necessarily that he failed to see his need for God. He was just afraid of what he would lose if God caught him. But David had it right. When David said, you are my portion, Augustine had it right. St. Augustine wrote, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Paul had it right. When he described the tension he experienced nearing the end of his life, he, he wrote, uh, I, I'm in a really, uh, I'm in a straight betwixt two. I'm torn here. I don't know whether to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, or to remain here for you, for your sake. Isn't it interesting that he didn't say to depart and go to heaven? He, didn't, he wasn't describing streets, you know, clouds, streets of gold, gates of pearls. He wasn't even talking about a reunion with loved ones. What was the greatest thing? Jesus, to depart and be with Christ. You are my portion. The next line, however, in this psalm is where we get the theme of resolve. The next, uh, uh, yeah, next line is still in verse 57. You are my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep your words. And he's not just quoting himself. He's not just saying, I remember this one time I said I'd keep your word. He's making a decision. I have decided, I have resolved to keep your words. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Next, he says in verse 58, I entreated your favor with my whole heart. Be merciful to me according to your word. This is important too, and this is, this is something we've, I've returned to many times every year. He says, you're my portion, O Lord. I have said I would follow your word. And now I have entreated your favor with my whole heart. Be merciful to me according to your word. Very important there. That now he's making his appeal. He's not just saying, I'm going to do whatever you want, want me to do, and I don't care what happens to me. After he makes his commitment, you're my portion. I'm going to follow your word. I entreat your favor with my whole heart. I entreated your favor. Be merciful to me according to your word. He doesn't say, and since I've decided to follow your word, here's what you need to do for me. He's not entreating his due, uh, his recompense. He's not saying, since I promised to do this for you, here's what you owe me. Uh, or even, to put it more humbly, uh, to the extent that I successfully follow your word, I expect you to reward me 
and be merciful toward me. No, his appeal is not to his own success. He's not appealing to God based on how well he keeps verse 57. He's saying, I'm treating your favor. I want to be treated well by you, but I, the, only, the only expectation I have of, of uh, the kind of treatment that I desire is simply your favor, your mercy. This is a characteristic that we need to have nailed down. God desires to show us favor, and he's a merciful God. And th- it is out of this wellspring of grace and mercy that we can expect the good things of God. And uh, very, very interesting that this being written uh, during, uh, you know, under the law, that there really was this wide, uh, widespread understanding. It really wasn't quite there, but there was <laughs> no laughing on the front row every time my voice cracks. Beth. The, the, uh, the, really, the way it was set up back in Deuteronomy was, if you will do this, you know, if you won't forget me, if you'll follow my law, keep my word, I'll put none of the diseases of the Egyptians on you. Your vats will always be full. Your barns will always be full. Your livestock will never be sick. None of this stuff. But if you forget, if you forget your God, if you worship idols, uh, then I'm going to bring judgment in. So it was kind of this, you did this for me, I'll do this for you. And we've talked about this. One of the the overarching theme of the Old Testament is, here's the law you're supposed to keep, and I'm going to spell it out for you so you'll know when you miss it. And guess what? Everybody's going to miss it because you are entirely incapable of keeping the law as sinners. And yet David, or whoever wrote this psalm, David certainly knew, the goodness we get from God really doesn't happen because we're good. It happens because God is good. God is good to us because of his covenant. God continued to be good to Israel and Judah because of his promise to David. And we have it much, much better. We have a new and better covenant founded on better promises by far. Because our covenant partner is Jesus Christ. God made this perfect covenant with Jesus who perfectly keeps his end of the covenant. And we are in Christ. So we can and should resolve with the psalmist. We should say, I have said, I will keep your word. And, but then we don't stand up and say, and watch how good I do and reward me accordingly. We say, and, almost as a separate issue, I entreat your mercy. I entreat your goodness. Why? Because you're a good God. Because you're a merciful God. And because all the promises of God, all those good promises, including those good promises back in Deuteronomy, are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. It's a good thing. We should resolve to keep his word, to follow his commandments, but not to earn his mercy and goodness, but because we love him who is merciful and good to us. In verse 59, it says, I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. Also very interesting because the, the implication there is he had to turn. Turn my feet to your testimonies. There had to be a change. I, uh, I thought about my ways. All right, I've, I've determined to follow your word, and now I'm thinking about my ways. If I'm going to follow your word, I need to turn my feet. Something has to change. Let me read the next verse before I continue that comment. I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. Uh, 
that that means it wasn't just a resolution. There was action here. Matt Gober, my boss down at Canaan Land, was fond of saying this. He said, uh, a decision made is a battle won. And he was right. A decision made is a battle won. Once you make a decision, whatever it is you've been uh, agonizing about, you can stop agonizing. You can stop uh, sweating what you're going to do. But one battle is not the war. Making the decision is a victory. Making the decision is winning a battle. But other battles are ahead, and we must follow through and do what we have decided to do. The decision is one thing. It's one battle, and it is important to make the decision. But making the decision and then not following through will mean defeat in the next battle. So we need to make some decisions, and it's good, and it's winning the battle simply to decide, here's what I'm going to do. We look at that top ten list and say, it's not a matter of impressing God. We just look honestly. The Bible, the reason those are, those ten things I chose, there are other things, but the Bible addresses these things so clearly and, uh, and repeatedly that they're worth looking at. You know, read your Bible. I believe this is a word church. I believe most of you are Bible readers. But are you reading it faithfully? Are you reading it daily? Are you reading it devotionally? Are you reading it together as a family? I know there's some improvement that needs to take place in our house. Busyness just kind of drives some of these important things out sometimes. We all need to make some adjustments. Are you going to church? You are today. Are you sexually pure? Are you watching your mouth? Are you nice? I'll send you the list in the email if you want it. But we look at these things, and it's important to decide, you know what I'm going to do? This is, this is my resolution. I'm going to do better at these things. Or we look at them and say, hey, look, a seven of these things, I'd give myself a ten. So I rate each one of these things on a scale of one to ten. I'm a ten on seven of them. I'm going to resolve to be a ten on the other three this year. Last scripture we'll look at, Joshua chapter 1. Some of you probably saw this coming. Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Owning a Bible does is important. So if you look at your life and say, you know what, I've decided, I've heard enough about it, uh, I really need to have a Bible. And so you win a battle by deciding to buy a Bible or get your hands on a Bible. You win another battle by actually getting it. You made the decision to get one, then you get one, and you decide to read it. That's another good decision. Then you have to actually read it. Decide to read it, then you read it. And that's good. So far, so good. But why do we read it? Why do we meditate in it? So that we can know what's in it and do it. Everything leading up to that, if we do everything right, up to but not including the do it, everything else we did is for naught. The Bible is supposed to be working a change in our lives. And the Bible alone has that kind of transforming power. I mean, the Holy Spirit has that kind of transforming power. I'm talking about books. There are great books. There are inspiring books. 
I love books. I quote different books, uh, even in my sermons. But only the Word of God, only the Bible, has the power to truly transform you. So we read it, and that's good. But the, trans- the transformation comes in the doing of the Word. And what happens when we do that? Then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Is there anybody in here so stupid you do not want prosperity and good success? If you don't want those things, you are free to leave right now. You are in the wrong church. God does not want poverty and failure for you. He doesn't. And you, are never, I'm not gonna, I'm, you are not going to get coached in this church on how to embrace poverty and failure. We embrace people who are in poverty, poverty and failure, but the end game is always to get you out of poverty into a, success, uh, a successful and prosperous position. This is God's will. Amen. So I want to invite you to join us in this fast. And you can start whenever. Officially, uh, I think we'll start next Sunday. It's a nice, clean three-week period. And we still have New Year's to get through. No way am I starting today. Because New Year's in the Miller's house is seven-layer dip, man. Seven-layer Mexican dip. And it's not particularly healthy. There's guacamole in it, though. That's good for you, right? And there's refried beans. There's the fiber. So I guess it is healthy. I'm starting. But you can start whenever. If you want to start today, if you want to start the day after New Year's and get a few extra days, there's nothing magical about doing it exactly 21 days. All right? But we will start officially as a church next Sunday. And uh, since this is a fairly recent decision, you know, we had this. It was kind of just assumed we would do it. And so there was a uh, breaking the fast family meal planned that we took off the calendar when I said there wouldn't be a fast. So now we'll probably... How many of you want to have a uh, meal at the end of the fast? Okay, man, come on, man. That's, that's like the best meal we do because we've been so hungry so long. So the 10 of us will have a great meal uh, when we break the fast as a family. We'll probably do that. Uh, some of you, of course, uh, there's always a few people who uh, do something besides food. That's totally fine, too. If you decide you're going to fast television, uh, fast games, fast social media, that's perfectly all right. Um, as a reminder, what you lay down for this period of time needs to be a legitimate pleasure, okay? Not a, not a sinful habit, all right? There's other reasons to lay aside your sinful habits. This is something different. And I will do my best to send out emails uh, with guidance for the things that we can be praying about as a church, uh, and I'll send you the top 10 list along with some scriptures. Uh, and, but, but I wanted to, you know, we're going to start this till next week. Why didn't you preach this till next week? Really, the number one reason was to get you prepared and because you need to start reading Psalms this week. If you're going to get through it in a month, I, mean, I know you could read more than five a day, but I want that to be our January project as a church. Let's get through the book of Psalms. Um, go through it several times if you want. Uh, but I, want, I wanted you to go ahead and uh, have that notice because that's where we're going to kind of be spending some time. Go ahead and stand with me. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.